Hello everybody, I'm Ian Abernethy and welcome to the latest ianabernethy.com podcast. As some of you will have noticed, it's been a while since the last one, so I apologise for that. Uh, but just to reassure you, uh, these podcasts are going nowhere. Uh, the podcasts uh, have always been and continue to be one of my favourite things to put together. I know that people really enjoy them, uh, so they're going nowhere. If there's ever a gap, it's simply because I'm just busy on other things. As soon as I get the opportunity, I'll set the mic up and record a podcast as I am doing now. Uh, the other good bit of news is, as well, is I have some lined up and ready to roll out, so you won't have as long a wait uh, next time. Uh, one is, I've done a podcast on the law, uh, tried to keep that generic so it applies to people in all parts of the world, just some general thoughts on the law and how we need to fit that into training. It's a, it's a topic I've been asked to cover a lot. Um, of course, the, the law varies from country to country, so I've tried to keep that fairly generic uh, rather than getting into specifics, although I do use UK law as uh, examples and jumping off points. So that's that's done, and I'll get that recorded and ready to you soon. Uh, the other one that you'll want to definitely want to listen to is I recorded an interview with uh, my good friend Jamie Club. Now, when I say an interview, it was more of a conversation. Uh, me, me and Jamie uh, chat on the phone on a regular basis. I regard Jamie to be... One of the greatest martial minds we've got is a is a true martial philosopher. Uh, questions everything. Very very knowledgeable guy. Uh, every time we get on the phone, it's never less than an hour as we bounce things back and forth. And I always come off the phone thinking, okay, I've learned something there, or I've got some new things I need to think about. It's just such a fascinating guy to talk to and to talk with. So I, I've been encouraged, uh, encouraging Jamie to do his own podcast for a while, and the good news is he's he's now doing that. Um, and I also got him onto uh, my podcast, and we had a like a, a chat. Uh, we discussed all kinds of things, which I know you'll you'll really enjoy. Uh, Jamie comes from a more uh, modern background than I would. I think he would describe himself as a, a modernist, uh, a more eclectic kind of martial artist, where I would myself as a traditionalist. So our two backgrounds are, are totally different, and yet when we come to discuss things, we have a fairly similar approach in uh, how we approach what we do. So I, I always find uh, Jamie to be a fascinating guy to listen to now we we set some general themes because we know what we can both be like when we start talking and we aim to make the podcast about an hour long and two and a half hours later i knocked the microphone off <laughs> so uh, it's going to be a long one uh, in fact i'm going to split it into two so i'll probably put one podcast out then a week later drop the part b out um but y you'll love that it's it came out really well it's really interesting and the other one that i thought obviously it's getting towards the end of the year it's nearly christmas and we tend to do a q a one at, at that point like do a bumper one just ask you what you want me to talk about and i'll talk about those topics and they're always fun to put together so we'll do a bumper end of year one you've got a big one coming uh, my discussion with jamie club and i've got one on the law all lined up as well so yeah plenty to for the next few uh, few weeks to keep you going on the the podcast front uh, the other thing is, I'd just like to mention, is the app. So thank you to everyone who's uh, supporting that. I love working on the app. In many ways, it's like the podcast. It's a good way to, to reach people, uh, like get a, get a connection going and to work on like details of subject matter in a way that you can't through other media. So I'm very grateful to all those who are supporting that. Uh, as you know, I had a new video, uh, at least one, often two or three, uh, every single week. Uh, you know, our almost live section, when I've been to seminars and things, we've got uh, a Catabunkai section, which is huge. 
you know, loads of different characters broken down with sections on pad drills and you know, general training points and all kinds of stuff. So I'm very proud of the resource that the app's becoming. And of course, you know, I can't spend that amount of time on it unless people are supporting it. And, and thank you to everyone who supports it. Because I think, you know, together uh, with your um, support and your feedback and your requests, I think we're making something quite special there. And the other thing I think it's the last podcast is the first of the throwing series of DVDs is out. Uh, it's included in the app, so those who have the app have already seen that. Uh, if you haven't, that's available for DVD and download. Uh, I divided the throws into three DVDs, uh, one that works on lifting throws, one that uh, uses the principle of uh, blocking the step, and then postural disruption throws will be volume three. So volumes two and three will be coming soon, but volume one is available now. Uh, so yes, so I think that's about it for this, uh, this introduction. So this month we're talking about life-preserving and life-enhancing, which I think are the two things that any worthwhile approach to martial arts should do. So I'd like to talk about what I mean by those topics, what I see as being life-preserving, what I see as life-enhancing. And hopefully the idea is, is to get you to reflect on those questions for yourself and to make sure that you're getting the most you possibly can out of your martial training. So thank you for listening to this introduction. We'll now move on to discuss what makes the martial arts life-preserving and life-enhancing. There are lots of different martial arts and innumerable approaches to them. We all need to find the approach that works for us and that will most efficiently help us achieve our objectives. In my case, I feel that any martial art that I'm to invest time and effort into must achieve two key things. It's got to be both life-preserving and life-enhancing. Uh, many of you, especially those who've attended the seminars, will be familiar with that statement. And I'm sure it's the same for many martial artists, although they may not use the same terminology to express the sentiment. In this podcast, I thought I would break down what life-preserving and life-enhancing actually mean to me, and hopefully cover a few interesting talking points along the way. So let's start with life-preserving. What I mean by this is the martial arts helping to keep us alive, and there are two main subcategories to that. Firstly, in my view, any worthwhile approach to the martial arts should help us avoid harm when facing the violent behaviour and actions of others. Secondly, it should enhance our mental and physical health such that we are less likely to die prematurely. For the sake of clarity, I'd like to discuss each of these separately. So to me, it's an entry-level requirement that any worthwhile form of martial practice effectively addresses self-protection. I know many enjoy martial practice for health and enjoyment, and I'll discuss those elements later. But for me, any form of martial practice that does not address self-protection is not something I would be interested in. That would strike me as a very hollow form of martial practice. Any martial approach that does not address self-protection, i.e. is purely sporting or solely focused on art, uh, wouldn't be of interest to me. Now, there's not necessarily anything wrong with that if it's done knowingly and honestly, but it's not for me. What I do have an issue with is the approaches that say they address self-protection, that don't do it effectively, or are blind to their shortcomings because they have never educated themselves about what such an approach should include. Everyone should avoid that, but honestly choosing to ignore self-protection because it's sport or the art aspects that interest us is perfectly fine, but it's not for me. For me, any system I'm going to spend time on must effectively address self-protection. Now, in the modern world, violence is, 
for most people, far less common than it was. We live in one of the safest periods of human history. Therefore, for most, there's not going to be a pressing need for physical self-protection skills. Away from forms of employment that bring people into contact with violence, such as a prison officer, police officer, bouncer, etc., most people will not be facing violence on a regular basis. If people are, then there are some lifestyle issues, personal security issues, or personality issues that need to be addressed. The primary solution is not going to be martial arts or physical self-protection skills. True self-protection training will cover good personal security habits, such that the risk of violence is reduced yet further, with the physical skills being a kind of insurance policy should the worst happen. Just like home, car or health insurance, none of us want to call on those things, but we like the peace of mind of knowing that they're in place, and we're extremely glad we do have them if circumstances mean we have to call on them. So, for me, I have always sought to ensure that all aspects of self-protection training, both the non-physical and the physical, are thoroughly covered by those I've sought instruction from. They're also addressed in my own teaching, and they're also covered in the instruction I offer. Self-protection is a non-negotiable must-have for me, despite the relatively low risk of violence. Martial artists sometimes have a very warped concept of risk, though. As just mentioned, while the consequences are high, the actual chances of people facing life-threatening violence are very low. The most recent figures I have seen from the United Nations have the global risk of homicide at 6.2 per 100,000 population. That's pretty low. Uh, living in the UK, it's down to a minuscule 0.9 per 100,000 of population. Uh, the USA, where the majority of those listening to this are based, uh, that's 4.88 per 100,000 population. While every homicide is one too many and a devastating tragedy, the chances of anyone listening to this being killed by someone else are low. That doesn't mean we can ignore the risk, and as martial artists we should be doing all we can to reduce our personal odds still further. However, we do need to get a sense of perspective. For example, the World Health Organization has reported that smokers have a 50% chance, so that's a coin flip, of dying as a direct result of their habit. However, it's not uncommon to hear martial artists wax lyrical about the threat to their lives from criminal violence, while totally ignoring the exponentially greater threat that they post themselves through smoking. I'm reminded of a tale one of my teachers once told me. He was once asked by a badly out-of-shape guy, uh, who was a heavy smoker, to teach him self-protection. My teacher said he would be only too happy to do so, but they had to start with protecting himself from himself. The idea was that the main threat to this guy's health, well-being and happiness, were not some future criminal encounter, but his own actions and choices. This brings us to the second part of life preserving. As well as imparting self-protection skills, any worthwhile approach to martial arts should enhance our mental and physical health such that we are less likely to die prematurely. Indeed, if you look at the statistics and probabilities, it can be argued that this is more important than the combative skills. There are other ways to stay fit and healthy, of course, and one of the positives of martial arts instruction is that they can, when done right, cover both combative skill and health at the same time. They're not unrelated either. Optimum combative skill demands good health. Anyway, back to the health improvement side of the martial arts. The World Health Organization have stated that insufficient physical activity is one of the leading risk factors for premature death worldwide. Insufficient physical activity is also a key risk factor for non-communicable diseases such as cardiovascular diseases, cancer, diabetes, etc. 
The fact that martial arts promote physical activity is therefore a key way in which they preserve life. Personally, I would have no interest in a martial art that did not promote good health. Training needs to be physically demanding enough to cause positive adaptations. It needs to be demanding enough to promote demonstrable increases in strength, flexibility, bone density, cardiovascular fitness, etc. The training also has to be tough enough to demand an honest assessment of our physical condition. A few years ago, I had a back injury which limited my training intensity. During my recovery, because I wasn't that physically active as I would normally be, I put on some weight. So when I started to ramp up my training, I was immediately aware of the reduced aerobic capacity and anaerobic capacities and the fact that the weight was taking some moving around. The karate training that I do is intensive enough that I can't delude myself. I can't claim my chi has sunk into my belly and ignore it. The karate demands I lose that extra weight, so that's what happened. For me, I need training that causes an honest assessment of my physical condition. I need training that tests my strength, my flexibility, my aerobic and anaerobic fitness, and that will make me fully aware if any is lacking. Such training will also ensure those physical attributes are developed too. Personally, I also need something that will scientifically improve health and fitness. There's a fair bit of quackery that exists in certain quarters of martial culture. For example, an art that promises miraculous health benefits through harnessing chi or, or the opening up of energy flow would not cut it for me because there's no solid evidence that such chi or energy even exists. I personally need to know that the way in which improvements in health are sought have been studied and proved to be valid. I mean, that doesn't mean I'm automatically adverse to the softer ways of martial practice. Meditation and mindfulness have both been studied in great depth and have been shown to have significant health benefits, both mentally and physically. While I see kata as a vehicle for the communication of combative methods and a supplementary solo form of practice, there can be little doubt that solo kata can also provide a form of moving meditation and mindfulness. And there's value in that and that value should not be discounted. We just need to be sure that we don't put the cart before the horse. The physical benefits of the martial arts are often a byproduct of the combative training. We need to keep focused on the fact that the methods we practice are primarily focused on damaging the health of those who would harm us, as opposed to improving our own health. I can do 10 rounds on the bag and it will improve my health. I'll lose weight, I'll exercise my muscles, I'll improve the efficiency of my cardiovascular system. But the strikes I use on the bag are not created to improve my health. They were created to damage the health of others. We should not lose sight of that and see the martial arts as being like any other form of exercise. So both parts of the life-preserving aspect need to be covered. We need combative function and the promotion of good health. Now while these two aspects generally support one another, there are of course times when those two aspects can pull in opposite directions. To develop genuine combative function, the training needs to be realistic, and increases in realism can result in an increased chance of injury. Getting punched in the head isn't particularly good for your health. We obviously mitigate the risks as far as we can through sensible safety measures, but the martial nature of the martial arts means that they can never be eradicated completely. So there will always be some tension there. What should be avoided is unnecessary risk or unintelligent training that could result in needless injury or accident. We also need to avoid making training stupidly hard to the point where it is detrimental to our health too. Hard training can be fun and I'm as prone to alpha male chest beating as the next man, but there needs to be a point where intelligence and a desire for longevity kicks in. Intelligent hard is to be sought and encouraged. Unintelligent hard is to be avoided. 
It rarely develops skill and fitness in the long term, but injury and early retirement are pretty much guaranteed. This leads me to another thing that I would personally demand from a martial art. It needs to be a whole-of-life pursuit. It needs to be able to move with a developing and then aging body while improving health and fitness at every stage. I think this is one of the great strengths of karate. Children, teenagers, young adults, the middle-aged and the elderly can all practice karate, albeit in different ways and, generally speaking, for differing objectives. Other martial arts have a more limited lifespan and hence would hold less appeal for me. If you enjoy and benefit from something, then you don't want to stop doing it. I've practiced karate as a child, a young adult, an adult, and now as a middle-aged man. I enjoy it every bit as much now as I always did, probably more so in fact. I'm also inspired by my teachers. They're all in the 60s and 70s now and every bit as inspirational as they were when I first trained with them. I want to keep practicing karate and be as fitness healthy as them when I'm their age. Any martial art that demanded I stop because I'm deemed too old would not be one I'd wish to practice. While there are lots of active elderly karateka, there are comparatively few active elderly boxers. Additionally, as popular as MMA is these days, it does strike me as a young man's game. And it remains to be seen if current practitioners will be able to find ways to keep training productively as they age. Another aspect of being life-preserving are the mental health benefits of karate. Here in the UK, the leading cause of death for men my age and younger is suicide. No one is immune to mental health issues and I've personally had experience of depression and anxiety. Life can be hard and having to endure the unendurable for long periods of time will inevitably take its toll. Depression is a truly terrible thing, and I think you have to live it, truly live it, to know how deep it can go. One of the identified reasons why suicide is much more prevalent in men than it is in women is the fact that men don't have the same opportunity to talk their feelings through. We also have the fact that men are far less likely to seek help, and there is some great help available for those who seek it. I think this is part of wishing to seem strong and self-reliant. The sometimes testosterone-driven world of martial arts would, at times, seem to support this mistaken and harmful view of manliness. The positive side is that martial arts can provide good friendships and a support network. Dealing with depression takes huge strength. You know, that needs to be acknowledged. During one very dark time in my life, and, and there have been a few, uh, a close friend said to me, your training will be your salvation. And he was right. Another friend recognised the signs of depression I was exhibiting, having suffered it himself, and it was he who made me promise I'd go to the doctors. I have this thing about never breaking my word, you know, I really didn't want to go, but once he'd made me promise, then I had to. And when I talked it all through with the GP, I realised I was indeed showing all the signs of depression, and, and anxiety too. I told the doctor that I felt like a zombie, you know, there's bits dropping off me, but I just keep on going. <laughs> I keep plodding forwards, but not in the, the best state. And being open about it, talking about it, and seeking help made all the difference. You know, I've had a brutal existence at times, and I know what being in that deep, dark pit can feel like. I also know that getting out of it can be the hardest battle you'll ever fight. My experience has also been that depression is an inevitable result of having to endure the unendurable for long periods of time. Just like our bodies, our minds can only take so much. And it's the ones who have had the heavy loads to bear that know this most keenly. You know, those who've had an easy existence can never appreciate the truth of this. It's a tragedy that so many men feel unable to ask for help and support. You know, it's not a sign of weakness. We need to fight smart and not just hard. Getting tactical advice from people who know the territory is a smart thing to do. As Winston Churchill said, if you're going through hell, then keep going. 
However, when in hell, it can help to know you're moving in the right direction. There are people who can help point you in the right direction and avoid making mistakes. Anyone battling depression has both my sympathy and my admiration. It takes a tough SOB to battle it, and in doing so, you get even tougher, wiser, and more compassionate. You know, it's as martial as it gets. One of my favourite martial quotes is this one from Gichin Funakoshi. One whose spirit and mental strength have been strengthened by sparring with a never-say-die attitude should find no challenge too great to handle. One who has undergone long years of physical pain and mental agony to learn one punch, one kick, should be able to face any task, no matter how difficult, and carry it through to the end. A person like this can be said to have truly learnt karate. So our martial training can help ensure we keep moving forwards, no matter how great the difficulty. I'd not be interested in a martial art that did not encourage such resilience to the difficulties of life. I'd also not be interested in a martial art that indulged in false macho fantasies and encouraged people to bottle their feelings up or deny the reality that life can sometimes be brutally savage. Life can be brutal, and that can take its toll. Any decent martial art should want people to acknowledge the reality of that. To do so promotes realism and a healthy attitude to life's trials and tribulations, and that can be life-preserving. Of course, it's not enough that we just keep on living. We need to thrive and enjoy life. It's not enough to live to be a hundred if we hate every second of it. Martial arts should not only be life-preserving, they should also be life-enhancing too. They should not be a necessary chore done solely to avoid ill health and the threat of criminal violence. They should be something we genuinely enjoy and that greatly add to the quality of our lives. No martial artist should be sitting on their deathbed complaining that the tens of thousands of hours they spent training was a total waste of time because no one tried to kill them. Workable self-protection skills and increases in health have objective measures. It works or it doesn't work. It's proven to be good for us or it's not. Things are obviously far more subjective when it comes to enjoyment and what we find life-enhancing. One immediately obvious thing should be that we martial artists are an odd bunch. The majority of the world's population don't find swinging punches at each other's head to be fun. Nor is their idea of a good time pushing beyond your perceived limits as your weaknesses scream at you to take the easy path. Martial arts are not everyone's idea of fun, but they are our idea of fun, and that means we have fun doing them, and they are therefore life-enhancing for us. There are also different flavours of martial arts too. What may be deeply interesting to one martial artist may have no attraction for another. To give a couple of personal examples, I have comparatively little interest in learning classical weaponry. I will never be in a situation where I'm facing a bow-wielding attacker while I'm using tonfa. Kabuto is therefore not something that appeals to me enough for me to devote training time to it because of its lack of direct utility in the modern world. However, I know that, for many people, learning the complete package of both armed and unarmed skills is very important, you know, and I can appreciate that. Now, none of us is ever going to find ourselves guards up, moving back and forth while we duel with fellow martial artists either, unless we choose to do so. But that does interest me. I do spend time polishing the skills needed to fight my fellow martial artists, even those skills with little or no relevance to self-defense. And the reason for that is I find it interesting and fun. That said, I've never liked the way of sparring found in points karate because I felt it was too limited. I want my clinching, my takedowns, my low kicks, my arcing punches, and so on. Now, this isn't judgments of better or worse, but likes and dislikes. And that's down to me as an individual. Other individuals will have different likes and dislikes. 
I feel we should all address the life-preserving self-protection side of things and then also enjoy the other martial aspects that we find fun and enjoyable too. Now, many listening to this will like certain parts of martial arts that I don't, and vice versa, and that's good and healthy. What matters is that you like it. Away from bunkai and the pragmatic use, I love the feeling of doing solo kata. I like the way it makes my body feel. I have plenty of martial arts friends who hate kata. Kabuto does not significantly interest me, but I have friends who love it. I have little interest in points karate, but I have friends who really enjoy that too. You know, The point is to each their own. For me, it's also important to feel part of a tradition, to be a link in that chain from the forgotten past to the unseen future. Knowing that makes my martial arts a little bit more enjoyable for me, and this is why I'm likely to favour a traditional martial art over a modern one. However, I also want an art that's pragmatic, able to critique itself, and that is capable of evolution. So the more dogmatic approaches to traditional practice are not for me either. Other things that would be off-putting to me is the encouragement of a dark and unhealthy mindset. Encouraging awareness is a very important part of the life-preserving side of things. But if that crosses a line to paranoia and a disproportionate fear, then that fails on the life-enhancing side of things, and I have no interest in that. I would not be interested in a martial art that was obsessed with criminal violence to the exclusion of all else, and that made people more fearful simply to justify practice. The relatively rare threat of criminal violence needs to be made to feel imminent and ubiquitous in order to justify that being the sole reason for practice. It's not healthy, but I see that a lot. The fear of crime can be harmful in and of itself. Awareness, yes, very much yes but a paranoia that makes people fearful to engage in the world and interact with other human beings is not something I would be interested in being involved with. As touched on earlier, I also don't want to be engaged in a martial art that promotes a twisted and distorted view of masculinity. I've seen my fair share of that too. Martial artists playing up to the tough guy stereotype and making a virtue of a take no shit attitude is not something I want in my life. It's often rooted in insecurity, and when you get a group of such individuals together, nothing good can come of it. I also find that misogyny tends to be present in such groups, sometimes blatantly outspoken, sometimes just below the surface, but detectable in the choice of derogatory terms they use for one another. Again, I am someone who enjoys the physicality of the martial arts, and there's little doubt it appeals to the testosterone-driven side of me. But to me, there is a marked difference between true masculinity and pseudo-masculinity. I want to be in an environment where I'm challenged by others but with a view to mutually pursuing the advancement of all members of the group. I don't want to be in a group where the aim is to mindlessly beat the living daylights out of each other in order to temporarily placate the deep insecurity of whoever dominated on that day. Spending time with brothers in arms is always a joy, but I've no time for the toxic atmosphere caused by misplaced macho BS. Mutual respect is also a must for me. Spending time with good people, hard-working, tough people who want to push their limits and bring out the best in themselves and others, spending time with such people on a common pursuit is certainly life-enhancing. I want that. I don't want to be around people who feel the need to prove themselves superior to others in order to temporarily silence their inner demons. I love the phrase, a true martial artist is someone whose smile will warm the hearts of little children and whose anger will make tigers cower in fear. That's a perfect summation of the martial arts for me. I don't want to be around paper tigers who pretend to be martial artists, but who in reality couldn't fight sleep. I also don't want to be around the violent and unhinged who totally miss the 
warm the hearts of little children side of the equation. As Soshi Nagamimi said, a martial artist should aspire to have a saint's heart and a demon's hand. If a person has one and not the other, then they are not martial artists in my eyes. As an aside, I think the entertainment side of modern MMA can contribute towards this problem. Whilst many top MMA athletes would perfectly fit the aforementioned definitions of a true martial artist, there's also the need of the industry to withdraw in an audience for fights. The resulting theatre at press conferences and weigh-ins is often successful in achieving the desired hype. But when some people see two top competitors trading insults and threatening one another, they may conclude that's how a martial artist acts. And that's not an unreasonable conclusion, seeing as they've just seen two people acknowledged as being top martial artists behaving that way. It can then become part of the culture that finds its way into gyms and dojos. Sadly, the mutual respect when the fight is over, and there's no longer a need to sell tickets, has passed, uh, does not have the same impact. I'm not sure what you can do about that, because people need to perceive animosity to sell the narrative of the fight. Every story needs a bad guy intention, so you're invested in the outcome. You know, We need to care who's going to win. And the press conference theatre provides the backstory for the conclusion of the fight. So I do understand the need to sell the fight. I also realise that the theatre is not often representative of the individuals involved. With a few notable exceptions, most pro fighters are honest, hard-working and admirable people. It's a role, almost. You know, Anthony Hopkins is not Hannibal Lecter. He's playing a role for our entertainment. Pre-fight promotion often requires the same, although the line between entertainment and reality needs to get a bit more blurred there. I guess all that can be done is understanding that the promotion is what it is. It's promotion. And we need to avoid buying into it and avoid those who have bought into it and feel that's how martial artists should actually behave towards one another. It's very important to avoid negative people and to be around positive ones. Studies have shown that there are three key things we need to be happy. Number one, close friendships and enjoyable social interaction. Number two, having a job or a hobby that we love and that challenges us. Number three, helping others. So point one requires that we choose to practice martial arts in a way that leads to enjoyable social interactions. If the social interactions our martial arts cause are unpleasant, then it's not life enhancing, and that should be avoided. If your instructor is a narcissistic borderline psychopath, then training under them is not going to be a fun experience, so don't train with them. Go and find an instructor who genuinely cares about you and who will put you first. There's a lot of them out there. If the dojo or the gym is full of unpleasant people, that's normally a good indicator that the instructor attracts, or at the very least tolerates, such people. It's not life-enhancing to be in the company of such people. Find a better club, school or association. It's not enough that the instructor knows the life-preserving side of things. Your training has to be life-enhancing too. Genuinely life-enhancing. Now some people can fake being a nice guy for a while, but when their true colours show, don't tolerate it. Here in the UK, the British Combat Association, as well as the International Wing of the World Combat Association and the karate-specific subsection of the British Combat Karate Association, uh, they have a, a well-deserved reputation for promoting genuine real-world self-protection skills. The two heads of the group, Peter Considine 9th Dan and Jeff Thompson 8th Dan, are men who have been there, done that, and who have relentlessly promoted true combative efficiency. However, since the formation of the group, the policy has always been in place that anyone teaching on a BCA course must be a nice person. 
irrespective of combative skill. What is more, they have stringently stuck to that policy. It's not just something written on a website or a membership prospectus. Talking the talk is one thing. Consistently walking the walk is another. Life is too short to spend time around people who are not fun to be around. If you find the right teachers and the right group, not only will you develop your skills, but you will also enjoy the process and the company of good people. Your martial arts will then be life-enhancing too. Life is too short for anything else. Remember, the studies show there are three key things we need to be happy. Number one, close friendships and enjoyable social interaction. Number two, having a job or a hobby that we love and that challenges us. Number three, helping others. So we've just discussed how choosing the right kind of training environment can contribute towards close friendships and enjoyable social interaction. We've also discussed how the martial arts can provide a hobby, maybe even a job, that challenges us and that we love. And in the right martial environment, there will be a healthy and positive network where you can help others and they can help you too. You know, not just in the martial arts, but outside of the dojo too. You, know, you get a good circle of friends for being involved in the martial arts. Now, the science on this is clear as well. And it matches what many religions and philosophies have been saying for a very long time. Helping other people makes us happier. It's not about looking out for number one, because that way misery lies. Being kind, friendly, and doing good deeds leads to a better quality of life. One of the ways in which the martial arts are life-enhancing for me is that they afford me the opportunity to interact with people all over the globe. I love spending time with good people who share my passions. Having that opportunity is a huge way in which the martial arts have enhanced my life. As well as enjoying the company of others, I also want to ensure that others enjoy my company too. And that means I'm helping others, and that will also contribute towards my happiness and well-being. I always try to help people as much as I can, ensure they have fun during their time with me, and leave feeling energised and upbeat. I strongly believe that's the right thing to do, but the fact it leaves me feeling good is definitely a bonus. For happiness, we also need a job or a hobby that challenges us. Martial arts are my profession, but it's not about the money for me because the money is not life enhancing. Again, the science is with me on this one. Once our basic needs for food, shelter and security are met, research shows that having money beyond that does little to contribute towards our happiness. Indeed, research also shows that being focused on money and material things can make people profoundly unhappy. Money can't buy happiness. And the false conviction that it can leaves people endlessly pursuing more and more on an endless cycle of dissatisfaction. My aim has always been to have just enough money not to have to worry about money. If you live a lean life and you don't chase trinkets and trappings that you don't need, you'll be happier. And that's certainly been my experience. I could have made far more money if I'd stuck with my previous job as an industrial maintenance electrician. But that was not life enhancing because I didn't love that work, nor did I find it particularly challenging. So I made martial arts my profession. I can then provide for my family while doing something I love. My personal approach to the martial arts is therefore life-preserving and life-enhancing. It helps to keep me safe from the violence of others. It keeps me physically and mentally fit and healthy. So it's life-preserving. It also brings me into contact with good people. It challenges me. I train in the aspects that fascinate me and that I enjoy. And it also affords me an opportunity to help other people. So it's life enhancing too. I'd encourage you to look at your own martial practice to ensure that it is both life preserving and life enhancing too. If you can be sure you're addressing both aspects in a way that works for you, 
then every second you spend in the dojo or the gym is a second well spent. So there you have it. What makes martial arts life-preserving and life-enhancing for me? So I would encourage you, as I just mentioned, to look at your own martial practice and make sure that it's ticking the boxes for you. You know, we spend a lot of time doing this martial arts thing, so it needs to address your goals. If self-defense matters to you, then is it effectively addressing that? Uh, is it good for your health and, and, and your fitness? Um, is it bringing you into contact with, with good people? Is it providing a meaningful challenge, something that you enjoy doing? If your martial practice is doing these things, then every second you spend on it is time well spent. But it's important to stop and reflect and make sure that it is doing what we want it to do. Because, you know, we do spend a lot of hours and a lot of effort on these things. And we need to make sure we're getting uh, getting the return. So, yeah, so thanks for listening to this one. As I say, it won't be that long until we'll be back with uh, another one. Uh, we've got the uh, interview with Jamie Club, which I'll probably end up splitting over two podcasts. Uh, that was, again, a great conversation. I know you'll enjoy that one. Uh, I've got one written on the law. I think you'll enjoy that one too. And uh, before Christmas, we'll do the usual Q&A end of year one, because they're always fun and make for a... Uh, what's, what's the word I'm looking for? A bumper Christmas edition. <laughs> uh, we'll, uh, we'll do one of those as well. So watch out for Facebook and Twitter and the website, usual places because I'll be asking for your topics that you want me to cover and your questions uh, in due course. And I think the only other bit of news that I've got is that I've been promoted to 7th Dan by Peter Considine, 9th Dan. Uh, obviously, you know, Peter's someone who shouldn't need any introduction. Uh, a, if, if he does, then you can listen to the podcast that we did together. Uh, Peter's knowledge of all things martial and self-defense-wise is pretty much unparalleled to sort of have that man... Um, deem me worthy of a seventh dan uh, obviously means a, a great deal to me so that grade comes from peter and uh, via the british combat karate association the british combat association the world combat association and it's also been uh, ratified by the english karate federation as well so um yeah very very proud of that so yeah thank you for listening to the podcast as well i'll be back with more uh, information very soon and uh, thank you for your patience in waiting for this episode okay take care speak soon bye bye now